I got this shirt Smells like the viewing Formaldehyde Tobacco and tulips I've washed it ten times And it won't come out No matter how long it's been I can't forget it I smell it right now And it won't come out It won't come out Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast, where we talk with songwriters about the creative process and the power of music. My name is Mike. Our guest today is L.A.-based musician and songwriter Jason Hawk Harris. I was particularly excited when Jason agreed to participate in our podcast as he put out one of my absolute favorite records of 2019, his debut album, in fact, Love and the Dark. I first came across Jason's music when I was researching performers who were appearing at the Americana Music Festival in Nashville last fall. I then saw him perform there at the Bloodshot Records event, and I, and pretty much everyone else in the audience, was blown away by his set. Really, really great. I then spent some more time with the album and really got into it. So as I looked into Jason's background a bit as I prepared for this discussion, I learned two relevant things. One, he has, for a young man, seen some difficulties in his life. Personal struggles, struggles of those close to him, loss, addiction. Clearly this has impacted his music and accounts for some of the intensity and emotion in his writing. Although, as he explains in our chat, he sometimes also kind of weaves in stories of others into his writing. Second thing I learned is that Jason has a background in classical composition. When I learned this, a lot of what I liked about his record began to make some sense to me. Upon first maybe casual listening, Jason's music has elements of country, outlaw country, maybe in association with his bloodshot label, some country punk aspects. But there's much more to it. There are complicated arrangements. Uh, dramatically dynamic flows to the music, long instrumental sections, clearly the influence of his classical training. So not only do Jason's lyrics bring us compelling and attention-grabbing stories, his music and the arrangements are providing journeys themselves. I've touched on this before, that one of the casualties of our current music consumption model for a lot of us is that we don't spend the time we used to with entire albums, kind of getting inside them as complete works. I hope this episode serves to entice you to spend a little time with Jason's album, Love in the Dark. I think listening to him talk about his journey and the creation of these songs will provide some encouragement. You'll be glad you did. Quick shout out to Hannah at Bloodshot Records, who really made this conversation with Jason happen. Really appreciate that. So let's get to it. Here's our Tell You What discussion with Jason Hawk Harris. fingers comb through my hair open my eyes and there's no one there then I feel the weight of a phantom limb I call out to you but you don't say shit and I'm crying 
Jason, uh, welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to meet with us today. Thanks for having me. You're in LA, is that right? That's true. And that's home for you now? Yeah, it is. But you were uh, born and raised in Texas, Houston, is that right? Yes. So it, uh, is it safe to assume there was country music in and around your house growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's funny because, you know, in, in Houston, going to high school or middle school in Houston, it's like your parents listen to country music. I had a bunch of punk rock friends, so I didn't really like to admit that I liked George Jones secretly, but <laughs> I did. <laughs> so when did you first start playing music? I guess I, I got my first guitar when I was in second grade. It was this Ibanez number. It's uh, very, very blue um, and uh, very uh, what maybe a marketing executive at a guitar company would think was really cool, but wasn't that cool. (laughs) (laughs) And so you started playing guitar in second grade and kept up with it or? Yeah, pretty well. I kept up with it. I started taking it very a lot more seriously when I was about 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I was always more interested in writing songs and writing music than I was in in just being a someone like a hired gun, like a professional studio player. Right. Um, so most of my time was spent writing and uh, just creating. So from the very beginning, when you were 10 years old, you were writing your own music kind of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't any good. But, <laughs> yeah, I was writing it. <laughs> Has any of it survived? Absolutely not. I killed it all. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of music? Was it Was it country-influenced music then? or I didn't really have a... Um, I didn't know what genres were. I didn't know, you know, I knew the music that I was exposed to by my parents, which was, you know, everything from country music to Top 40 to Kenny Loggins and you know, Fleetwood Mac and then a bunch of whatever was on Christian radio. I mean, I didn't really have any knowledge of what genre was or I hadn't internalized that at all. So I was just kind of writing whatever was in my head. Right. So this was lyrics as well as music. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually you got interested in classical composition. Mm-hmm. I did. So how did you find your way there? Um, actually, funny enough, through Queen. Uh, I, when I was in fifth grade, I heard Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time and I just, um, I loved it. And I kind of dove into that song and started kind of doing some research for myself and learning more about it. And, um, you know, I just found through that process that Brian May and Freddie Mercury and, um, and all those guys were pretty heavily influenced by classical music. And so, you know, I just started checking some classical stuff out and I found myself really um, wanting to learn how to write that kind of music. And um, so I started taking lessons from a, a professor at Rice University. How old were you at this point? Uh, I was 15. Okay. Yeah, I think I was 15. Um, and before that, I had learned to read music in sixth grade um, in choir 
and piano lessons and guitar lessons. I, I learned how to read it. I just didn't know the ins and outs of, you know, um, voice leading and writing for a larger ensemble and uh, understanding the instruments that you're writing for, that kind of stuff. Just uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to learn it on my own. So, um, yeah. So what does it mean to take lessons in classical composition? Are you are you sitting at the piano? Is it a piano based thing or is it a, with a pencil and paper? Yeah. So my experience, I can only speak to my experience, was um, it was a lot about internalizing the music. Uh, hearing something before you write it, write it down, and learning how to best represent what's in your head on a sheet of music, on a piece of staff paper. Um, so uh, I was encouraged not to use playback or, recur- or, or recording devices to get my ideas out, and I was encouraged more to study a lot of the great composers and um, write a lot of my own music just out of my own head. I could use a piano. Um, that that was that was encouraged. But um, yeah, a lot of times I guess we would be sitting at a piano, and I'd bring in about thirty or forty measures of music that I'd written, and my teacher would set it in front of the piano and look at it, and um, and we'd start talking about kind of developing the ideas and the motifs and and uh, the form of the piece and what uh, a listener expects on a nuanced level uh, when they're listening to a piece of instrumental music, it becomes a lot about that, actually. Um, Like, for example, I remember one lesson I had where we looked at, um, it was a Brahms symphony, where the cello starts, the cello uh, uh, starts the, the melody and mm-hmm. it's higher in its range and it's really tense because the strings aren't you know they're they're so much thicker that you have this really this this huge tension uh with them playing this high and the listener perceives that even though they might not be able to say it's because there's a cello player playing on a thicker string at a pretty high range uh they do perceive that there's a lot of tension there and then right after that he states the melody again in the violins and the violins are playing it in the same octaves as the cellos, but on thinner strings, so that the tension is released without using any chords. The tension is released just through, just by way of orchestration. Hmm. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I would go through in a lesson with a composition professor, um, and uh, you know, we we talk about a number of other things. Um, it's definitely not, it's not very structured. Um, you know, it always, it's whatever is coming up at that point in time. Were you literally then, when you had your ideas, were you able to just sit at a piece of paper and start writing the music? Or did you have to have a piano or instrument to kind of flesh out what, what was in your head at the beginning? It largely depended uh, on what I was writing. Like, so if, if I was writing like more horizontally oriented music like more uh big chords i would want to be in front of a piano uh mm-hmm. just so i could hear all four voices or all eight voices or however many voices i was doing I, that was kind of important for me to hear how the chords moved even though i kind of in my head knew how they would move it was it's all it's always better to just hear them like that but if i'm writing um more sorry uh, i meant i meant vertical vertical music uh if i'm writing more horizontal music or more contrapuntal music where the voices are all moving at different um different intervals all the time and there's a lot of um yet contrapuntal motion and contrary motion and stuff like that typically i don't i wouldn't use a piano 
Um, and mm-hmm. I would just go straight from my head because it's easier for me to hear individual lines and how they go and how they interact uh, than it is in my head than it is to hear uh, complex chords mm-hmm. in my head. So, um, so yeah, it, it would depend. So if I was writing something fugal or like an invention or something in that vein, I would I would not use a piano and just use pencil and paper. We'll get back to this, I think. Um, but just following your your personal thread, eventually you found your way to more uh, popular music, right? Yeah, Country, absolutely. Rock, that kind of thing. So how did what, what what caused that pivot? Well, I never really pivoted. I was always doing both. Like, I, okay. I, you know, when I was when I was doing classical composition, I kind of had it in my head that like this is going to help me no matter what kind of music I end up doing. You know, this is going to yeah. be. This is going to inform a, a kind of perspective, and uh, and so I always want to do it. I enjoyed it, um, and it was a way to be able to study it in school. There aren't a lot of degrees for country music in college, so that's kind of why I was doing it. But the whole time I was listening to Queen, and I listened to a lot of punk rock, and um, I listened to you know a ton of popular music. So right. I never left that. Um, I always loved popular music. It was always the thing I liked most especially when it came to writing songs. So were you out performing at all at, during this time? Yeah, absolutely. I was in, I was in a number of, of bands when I was in middle school and high school and um, a couple punk bands. I was in a kind of a, a really strange ska metal uh, kind of project <laughs> that called, uh, <laughs> called Mr. Meticulous and the Sloppy Joes. Um, That's good. That uh, did. I was in a band called Three for Theodores. Band called Amber Drive. I was always real. I always loved being in bands and like making music with my friends. Um, so yeah, but we were always playing shows. We played at this place called Fuel Cyber Cafe in Humble, Texas, and that place just let us play, and they paid us a dollar a head, which for a high schooler is a trip to Denny's with your friends. So <laughs> you know, you're pretty psyched about that. And you were playing original music at, as parts of these bands, too? Yes. Okay, so let's talk about your background, that classical composition, and how it relates to what you're doing now. So mm-hmm. how do you see it entering into your process, A, from like the, the origin, the songwriting perspective, and B, maybe when you get into the studio and do the actual production of the songs? Hmm. You know, regardless of... It's not really okay. I'm going to go to my classical side for this part, and I'm going to go to my songwriting side for this for this part. It's kind of all become one thing. And I used to compartmentalize a lot and think, "Oh, this is more this is more classical me. I need to think like that." And then versus like, "Oh, this is more lyric lyrical songwriting me. I need to be more like that." And I've just over the years, I've just uh, my producer Andy Freeman at one point said, "Like, stop trying to be two different people and just be one." person and just let all of it come out the way it comes out and so I kind of just started to stop caring about um, continuity and ended up having a lot more continuity in my opinion (laughs) right Um, but uh, yeah so when I'm starting out uh, with a song if I've got an idea for a song I will typically I'll typically start with a lyrical idea Mm -hmm. and then I'll put um I'll put together a pretty quick little melody and song structure 
maybe write something out. A lot of times I'll actually write one single line without breaking it. Uh, the sh I'll write it out in the shape of the song that I want, like a physical shape, so I can kind of look at it and then make notes along that line as far as how I want to orchestrate it or you know, how I want it to, where the high point of the song should be, where the arrival point should be, where the building part should be, whether... Are you talking about just like a, a free-handed graph, or are you talking about a musical notation? Yeah, here? just a free-handed graph is, is usually the first thing I'll do, just to get a big, the biggest, most broad, general idea of how I want the song to kind of look at the end. That's usually the first thing I do, and that's the same thing I do with instrumental music, too, if I'm writing that, although I don't do that much anymore. Yeah, so I'll just, I mean, a lot of my songs, I, I have start out with just me drawing a line um, hmm. and, you know, making little peaks and valleys in that line to indicate where I want to take the song eventually. So at this point, you haven't picked up a guitar or, or sat at the piano? I try not to write with a guitar anymore. I just find that I get too stuck into um, old patterns and um, I find that my melodies become a lot more interesting when I'm just uh, writing just out of my head uh, rather than trying to go with a guitar. So, but, but once I do come up with kind of a melody and a song structure and I draw that line and kind of write some orchestrational notes that at, the, at that point I will get the guitar and start to kind of figure out the chord structure and the harmonic, um, the harmonic structure. And, you know, if there's any sort of time changes or tempo changes or anything like that, I'll start getting a little bit more specific and it starts as a block and I just kind of chip away at it until it starts looking like it has a face or fingers or, um, you know, toes and uh, <laughs> just just keep going until it's a full thing. Um, and usually I, I consider the studio process kind of the... Um, the cooking process, you know, if we're if just to stick with the pottery metaphor, mm -hmm. where like I go in and I've got all the ideas, now I'm ready to put them down, and um, and once they're put down, I've already thought about them quite a bit in advance, and yeah, but I, I do I do still because I have a lot of great players that I play with, I do like to leave room for them to be spontaneous and for them to add what they what they bring to the table as well. So I don't, uh, at the same time, I think Quincy Jones said in an interview a couple of years ago, he was like, you always got to leave room for the Holy spirit. Right. And I think that's true. I, I, so when I go to the studio, even though I'm probably a lot more prepared and ready to go and know what I want more than most folks, when they're going into a studio, I still like to leave a good bit of room for people to explore um, the space and the song and come up with kind of whatever inspires them. Right. Let's talk about this latest batch of songs in a, in a general sense. So you've been writing songs, writing music, sounds like most of your life. This most recent batch on this album are very personal mm -hmm. uh, songs. Has it always been that way for you? Or is this, are you surprised that how personal this batch turned out? You know, I have tended to gravitate toward personal um, in regards to the tone of a lot of my songs. I uh, I don't know why. I think maybe in some ways it's like self-therapizing. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, even when I was a kid, if I was sad or um, something happened that was hard or traumatic, like I would typically go and pick up a guitar and start writing how I was feeling. And, um, 
you know, it's only in the last few years that I've started to try to, you know, not get away from that, but just kind of vary the writing process because I realized it took by being so personal all the time with these songs and getting so deep with myself and, and exploring what's going on in my brain and soul. It's, uh, it's exhausting. <laughs> and I realized I just couldn't, and that's the reason why I wasn't very prolific is that I would just, so I'd get so exhausted by writing these songs, um, and really digging into my heart and soul. And so it's only been in the last five years that I've, I've tried to sort of, um, have songs that I write that have nothing to do with me that are, you know, not as, not as personal. Um, but the, the, the end goal being to, you know, essentially fool the listener into thinking that they are real. Right. Um, you know, cause I think that's what a good writer does. Um, and Steinbeck comes to mind. I'm not sure that he ever lived in the kind of poverty that, that the family and the grapes of wrath did, but he fooled you into thinking that he had because the experiences are just so real. Right. And you tend to write in the first person also, which gives that effect. Yeah, I do. Um, and I've tried to get away from that, but, uh, and, and I'm still not get away from it again, but just like try to change it up from time to time. And I always do end up coming back to a, an eye perspective. It's really hard for me to get away from that. Um, so you said most of your songs start with a spe- a lot of times specific uh, lyric. So are you sitting down with a specific idea also? So I'm going to write a song about the death of my mother or addiction or something like that and work from there? Or is it more of a more general idea that becomes something as you work on it? I would absolutely love if I could sit down with the idea for the song that I have and write that song right there, but it almost never happens. I feel like I sit down with an idea of what I want to write the song about lyrically, and it is gone and I'm on to something else almost every time. Um, For example, the song Grandfather, which is the last track on the record, uh, was a song that was supposed to be like a funny, goofy song written for my grandfather's 70th birthday, and uh, or 75th birthday. And it did not end up that way. It ended up taking this, you know, kind of crazy, kind of batshit crazy turn into something kind of spacey and wild and otherworldly. And um, I certainly didn't have that in mind when I started writing. This is a song that was on my list I wanted to discuss. So let's talk a little bit more about that. It's another one of your spiritually themed songs, mm-hmm. right? You are reunited with loved ones who have passed, is, that, right. is the way I read it. Um, in that, uh, To quote the lyric, in that beautiful place we always talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also the last song on the album, um, Maybe it's leaving us with a bit of hope as the last song. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I also hear the kind of the classical composition influence on this one. The yeah. la- with the la- last part of the song, there's a great instrumental section, tinkling pianos, drums, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that that song. Um, more than any song, I think that uh, kind of points to where I'm going with my music. For me, that's like the perfect combination of my classical side and my songwriting side. Um, that's the that's the that's always the 
the goal is for me to find a way to express that part of me more. Um, yeah, I'm always trying to get to that point where I can combine both sensibilities between like being a, a big country music fan and yeah. being, um, you know, a classical guy. And, uh, and I feel like grandfather, um, manages that. And I wish that I could accomplish that with every song, but I'm just not there yet. And maybe one day I will. Well, I think it worked out pretty well there. Father, I think my mother's here too. Is her suffering through? I am shaking just thinking of seeing her new. Freed from that dark room that's held her since youth. Oh, grandfather, tell me my mother's here too. Take a step back and talk about live performance. I saw you perform at the Americana Fest um, Bloodshot Records party. Mm-hmm. I, I really love that show. It blew me away. The people around me were all blown away too. You have had a kick-ass band with you. They seem to be enjoying themselves. What do you see as important to you in terms of a good live performance? Well, I want to... One thing is I want to be prepared Um so so prepared that i can just absolutely let loose without having to think about anything whatsoever yeah just being able being so uh so familiar with the music and so familiar with every single thing that my hands and my voice have to do that i can just completely you know find the muse and just perform these songs and you know put them into the universe the way they're supposed to be as much as i love being in the studio and recording i mean music is meant to be heard live and um so yeah and i feel like the the way to perform live and to to do it well is to really know what you're performing just like you know you know the back of your hand right let's talk about the album love in the dark Mm -hmm. um there's some uh, consistent themes here, spirituality, struggle, addiction. I think I saw you refer to it as uh, grief grass. <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty good description. Um, but musically, a lot of it has an upbeat vibe. Is that something you went for, that juxtaposition? Was that a conscious decision? Or is that just the way the songs presented themselves to you? I've always been someone who, like, in my saddest moments, I always, I, I still have, I'm I'm a very hopeful and optimistic person. And um, I think that in my music, it's just, I've always been like that. I always end up wrapping a sad song in a really happy jacket. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily intentional uh, in the sense of me thinking, okay, how do I, how do I make this sad song sound happy and hopeful? Like I don't, I certainly don't go there, but it, it does seem to be a natural inclination to go there. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the song uh, Giving In, mm-hmm. a song about addiction. Good example of that. Yeah, this is a personal um, song for you, I think. Um, there's a line in here in the chorus, I wish that where I am was where I'd been. I think that really hits the spot um, of the addict who really wants to, to change, to be free, mm-hmm. but can't, right? Right. Can you talk about this one a little bit? Yeah, um, 
This one is kind of a it, it's a it's it's personal, but it, it's kind of a hybrid. Uh, the character I think is a hybrid of me and my mother, who passed away from complications of alcoholism when she was only fifty one, mm-hmm. and um, you know I never knew anyone in my life. Uh, and I have a lot of addicts in my life for one reason or another, but, um, I've never met, uh, an, an addict that, um, wanted to change and quit and, and, uh, be done with the compulsion as much as my mom. Hmm. Um, and also someone who was, um, at the same time as ill-equipped as anyone to be able to quit she grew up with such a massive amount of trauma um in her in her family life and and uh in in her school life and and you know it was almost like every time that she got on her feet you could just see the life in her um was just amazing and uh and then you know somehow when things were just going their absolute best she's all of a sudden drank two bottles of Pinot Grigio and she's, you know, basically gone for Hmm. three weeks, four, five, six, seven weeks at a time. And in between going back and forth to rehab, then I have, I have addiction in my own life. And so I do, I do, uh, understand the inclinations and wanting to quit something that you feel like you're powerless to, to be able to, to do. And, um, I just kind of combined, um, a male character, um, you know, myself and a lot of my own experiences with, uh, with a lot of the experiences between my mom and my dad as someone who stayed with her for her whole life while she was fighting the the gene. Hmm. And, um, so giving in kind of came out of that. Baby, it ain't easy. It's a hell of a fight to argue with a demon almost every single night. Silver tongue got me thinking he's all right. So I get Drunk while he checks the time I'm double vodka's with a little line How does it feel now to be out on the road playing these songs, some of which are really personal, touching, you know, pretty raw emotions, I imagine, from your recent past? And then as you get further away from that time in your life, does it feel different playing them as you as you move further away from these events? Uh, yeah, it definitely feels different. I, I've, you know, I, I've, a beautiful thing about going on tour and playing these songs about your own life over and over again is that it allows you to internalize like the way that you've healed, the way that you've gotten, the way that you've come through on the other side in some certain aspect, the way that you haven't come through uh, the other side. Um, and it just kind of allows me to sort of process and as you process more those things don't become easier the things that you went through but it does seem to uh be something that you're able to deal with and to to accept as part of your life and part of your story and part of your path and i think as i've sang them more you know the lyrics don't mean any less to me than they did when i first wrote them but i have reached a level of acceptance with a lot of the more intense 
intense aspects of the songs um, that uh, that I can sing them and, and be okay. And and every now and then um, I will kind of forget myself and I'll just get just ran over by a truck hmm. uh, if I actually think about one of these lines and where I was when I was writing it, whether it was, you know, screaming my head off into a pillow out of like rage so that, you know, no one else would wake up, um, you know, in the middle of the night, two day, two nights after she, she died, which is, uh, you know, when I wrote the song was about two days after she died. And, uh, and, you know, if I think about that moment and go back there, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in pain again, and I can feel it just like it happened yesterday. While you're performing. Yeah, while I'm performing. But fortunately, those are fewer and far between the further away I get from them, but no, right. less, no less meaningful to sing. Right. Uh, let's talk about the song, I'm Afraid. I think this is my favorite on the record. Um, <laughs> I think I'm giving away my age here, but a certain part of my youth was spent enjoying bands from the so-called uh, cowpunk era, so like Jason and the Scorchers. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. X, Blasters, Beat Farmers, and I hear, I love this music because it combined kind of the energy, the intensity of punk with like the lyrical soul and swing of country, right? And that, right. that that's what you've done here on the song just, mm-hmm. just wonderfully. Um, contains one of my favorite, if I had to make a list of my favorite lyrics of the year, I think the line, no monster ever scared me like the face of Jesus Christ would be in the top five. Um, uh, those of us who grew up in religious households can identify with this, I think. It's like from the child's perspective, right? And I don't think adults really appreciate how seriously little kids take this religious stuff that they're hearing in, 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 a, in a religious home, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about this one? Yeah, um, it's interesting because... This song, it's so funny. People, I I probably get the most comments on this song at shows. Like if people uh, come up to me afterwards, if I'm hanging out after the show, um, and they'll talk about I'm afraid. And a lot of times they're either practicing Catholics or Christians, or Mm -hmm. they are lapsed Catholics and Um, non-Christians. But all of them are like, man, I really related to that song um, a lot. And I think that it's a common experience, whether you're religious today or not, uh, you do remember kind of the, the dread of, you know, that man up there on the cross, <laughs> you know, yes. the first time you saw that and just thinking, what is that, you know, and, and, you know, maybe you don't think that maybe as a kid, you, your feelings are less complicated. You can't even put words to them. It's just, it just feels like it just feels and I think that's really scary when you don't have the words or the processing power to be able to, in a life experience, to be able to put something in perspective and to go read about it and research it more. It's just this kind of really terrifying thing. And um, I certainly remembered that as a kid. Uh, and, um, you know, I still kind of experience that in my life today as someone who still considers themselves a practicing Christian. But yeah, that song, uh, was, was actually, it was born out of a story, uh, that a friend of mine told me about how he actually, his mother was very, very Catholic and she actually hung a picture up above his bed that, um, uh, you know, one of the kind of scarier pictures of Jesus 
he's got like you know the crown of thorns blood dripping down his forehead and like kind of right. looking right at you the sort of thing going on and it was for protection and he said he never and he the way that he finished the story was like i never I was never scared of the boogeyman or the tooth fairy or whatever, but I was terrified of Jesus and oftentimes <laughs> spent most spent most of my time trying to sleep under the covers so that Jesus couldn't get me. And I don't know, as an adult who who's a practicing Christian, I kind of heard that and was like, I don't feel like it's that different today. <laughs> and, uh, and so it kind of, uh, his story kind of allowed me to explore my own fears about, you know, what I believe and like, Sometimes I wake up and I, I think, oh my gosh, do I really believe all this stuff? You know, other days I wake up and it's like, yeah, of course I do. And, and then you, you deal with pain and, and you get this story uh, from the Christian perspective. Um, you know, the theology of it all is that, you know, Jesus came to save us from pain and from the pain and suffering that uh, of, of, the, of the dark side of the world, you know. And mm-hmm. yet we still live in a place where, I mean, it, it, you still have uh, egregious abuse committed on children and women and helpless victims. You still have, you know, pe- corporate entities taking advantage of of people um, in in just brutal ways. I mean, you have so much pain and suffering is still there. And I think as a Christian, you're constantly wrestling with this with this uh, this dilemma um of belief is like believing that the world is slowly improving and that once and that it, and that at some point evil will be eradicated from the world and then at the same time you see so presently um that that is not the case quite yet right. and uh so i think i'm afraid was me kind of wrestling with those um realities but ultimately coming to the conclusion that you know yeah i still um i still believe that stuff pretty uh, fervently. When I was young, I prayed that he would let me be. Mother hung his picture on my wall and prayed I would believe. She'd kiss my sweaty forehead, then turn out all the lights. No monster ever scared me like the face of Jesus Christ. But I listened to the promises and I came to know the Lord. But I don't know what for When I talk to Jesus I'm gonna ask him to his face Why'd you make this shit so hard? Lord, it feels like I've been played Oh, that grace Oh, that sound Oh, that hound It haunts me down Tracking down your prey While I dream of endless days I'm afraid Lord, I'm afraid Using this song as an example uh in terms of style, it seems like you landed on the right label at Bloodshot. Right? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I think this was the song that kind of put them over the edge. And Sarah Shook maybe had something to do with you getting together there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, me and Sarah shared a booking agent with the band I was in before called The Show Ponies. And The Show Ponies broke up and um, and I ended up wanting to play my own solo shows. And, the, and our booking agent graciously offered to take me on, even though I didn't have any history. Um, but one of the things he did was put me on tour with Sarah for about two weeks, uh, in 2018 in July, I think 2018 up the West coast. Um, and, uh, yeah, we got to hang out and, and really got, got to know each other well and, and 
got to hear her set, you know, 12 times, which I could, I could do with more. Anytime I get to see her, I'm really happy because I think they're great. Right. Um, but, uh, she unprompted by me, um, again, very graciously, uh, called bloodshot up and said, you should sign this guy. And, uh, so yeah, I still need to send her like, uh, uh, a gift of some sort, <laughs> but, uh, That's great. so I think, I think she definitely helps too. But, uh, what I like about bloodshot is they don't really sign anyone unless they can't imagine themselves, uh, seeing an artist sign with anyone else, but them. And uh, if they're just if they they only sign people they really, really love. And that's apparent in the way that they've treated me and the way that they've shown a respect for my music and what I'm doing and the way that they've helped me um, in a variety of ways. Um, They've uh, yeah, I've got nothing but great things to say about Bloodshot. And I'm really happy to be on that label. Well, it seems like a great fit. Let's talk about one more song. Uh, Sandwiched between two songs about substance abuse is a love song. Mm-hmm. confused mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i hear this kind of as a love conquers all theme right you might be unsure of a lot of things but not that one thing yeah yeah i had this guy um older gentleman uh, much much older gentleman uh, who had been married for a while and then got divorced and then married a couple more times got divorced a couple more times give me some marriage advice um <laughs> that seems about right yeah which uh he said um you know here's what you need to do before you know you get and he told me this at my engagement party he said here's what you need to do you need to put fifty thousand dollars in an ira and then you should get married <laughs> and i just remember thinking man this guy has no clue what musicians make and uh <laughs> or maybe what love is yeah yeah exactly i mean that was the other thing is is that this guy was so far removed from you know being young and in love and remembering what that felt like that he made the mistake of thinking that his words would actually mean anything to me but it just sounded like drivel to a 21 year old that was just completely head over heels in love and <laughs> And uh, so I just said, like, you know what, man, I, I didn't say this to him, but in my head, I'm just like, I know I don't have everything figured out. I got a lot of problems, a lot of really intense problems. But, like, I know one thing. I don't need to have $50,000 in an IRA in order to love somebody. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where that song came from. Someone told me once that I should make a little money Before I rush to put a ring on you like a bank account could teach me what grief and God ain't taught me And IRA just gives me more to lose And they say the more you learn, well the more you just don't know So tell me what the hell are we doing here? I got a little faith and a little doubt But that don't mean we can't make out with the cosmic music of the unknown in our ears I'm confused, I'm confused, yeah it's true What's that got to do with me and you? I'm confused, I'm confused, yeah, it's true. What's that got to do with me and you? Why can't I be in love? Why can't I be in love? Why can't I be in love? And be confused. Okay, we've talked here about a number of songs that struck me on this album, and uh, I'm going to let you go in a minute, but we didn't even get to the song that Rolling Stone just named one of the top 25 country Americana songs of the year, Phantom Limb, right? Mm-hmm. So that tells us how truly rich this album is. 
Um, you must be quite proud of what you've done here. I'm very, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I, I, um, I, I mean, I, I worked on it for about, they say you have your whole life to make your first record. And, uh, it really did feel like that. And I, um, you know, I, I just, uh, once we, we had finished it, there, there was going to be about a, you know, a year long period before everything was, um, before all the ducks were in a row and, and, um, and we could release it. And during that year, I just had so much self doubt and thinking like, is it right? Is it, is is the songs any good? Are people going to hate this? Are people going to like it? Like, or, you know, does it matter if they like it or hate it? Um, you know, do I feel good about what I did? Should I have done this differently or this differently? I mean, just constantly asking myself questions all the time about whether I was doing everything uh, whether whether it was done, you know, finished, because I think that's the one thing before you send it off to print, there's like, oh, man, there's some things I still want to change, you know, and there's always going to be those things. And, um, you know, my producer eventually just said to me, Jason, just fucking ship it. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> we did. And, uh, you know, when it came out, I'm I'm happy to say that, you know, it's gotten nothing but positive reviews um it's been yeah glowingly reviewed by a lot of respectable publications and and that surprised me and uh, it's been on some year-end lists and that surprised me especially in the years with so many strong releases and strong debuts um but you know i'm just um yeah I, i i'm really happy with it it's the first musical project i've ever done where i can look at it and say that's finished that's done i i did that and i'm i'm happy with it so yeah well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the record too. I'm not may not be a well established uh, musical publication, but <laughs> that's matter. my two cents. <laughs> it would be on my top ten albums of the year. I think it really would. That's great. Um, Thank you, man. So, Jason, we can we can leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This was a very interesting discussion. Um, sure. And, yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Jason. All right. And I'll dream of you. And you coming back around I dream of you Wake up mad and try to knock the cobwebs out I've been cussing at the light I'm always waiting for the night When I can medicate this beat down heart of mine This heart of mine This heart Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell You What, the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with Jason. I'm certainly looking forward to what he comes up with next. Seems he has a lot more to say musically and is certainly headed in an interesting direction. I encourage you to check out his live show if you get the chance. He is a committed performer. and When I saw him, he had an amazing group of musicians with him who put on a show full of energy and entertainment. Please check out some of our other episodes. You might just find your new favorite artist. Give us a rating or perhaps a review containing actual words on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps others find us and most importantly, gets these amazing young artists the rightful attention of some new fans. Lots more to come in this new decade and all the decades to follow, so stay tuned. In the meantime, remember, music is the best. One day I'll be fine I'll forget you in good time For now I'll medicate this beat down hard